Welcome back to Outside the System. In this episode, I interviewed John Marbach. John is a developer, growth marketer, and the founder of Encrypted Energy, a Bitcoin mining company in Maine. During our conversation, we talked about what got us into Bitcoin originally, energy and the difference between the digital and physical worlds, and my favorite part, how the Lightning Network is going to change how we all transact on the internet in the future. In this episode, I'm also using Fountain's new episode split feature for the first time, so any sats you send to outside the system for this particular episode will be shared with John. Let's get into it. John, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Neil. I'm glad to be here. Well, we've met up a couple times. We've been chatting, I feel like, for years uh, about all sorts of stuff. Bitcoin, Clown World, Lightning, all sorts of topics, energy. So really excited to have you on. Obviously, you know, big fan of the stuff that you've talked about and companies that you've built. So want to get into all of that. Maybe the best place to start is actually just kind of how you got into this whole world, like what your background is, how you started building companies and sort of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, and yeah, maybe we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my story really starts uh, back when I was in high school. Uh, I was just interested to uh, learn how to make money online on the internet uh, instead of getting a normal, uh, typical type of high school job in the summer. That led me into the world of internet marketing. And I worked for uh, an affiliate marketing company one of my summers in high school. We were just promoting fly-by-night brands. And that's where someone gave me the hint. They said, hey, John, you know, if you like this sort of stuff, you probably don't want to build some of these things that aren't meant to last. You probably want to actually look at how to start a, a real company that's meant to endure. And that's when they turned me on to Y Combinator at the time, uh, early on in Y Combinator's history. And my interest in building companies, building products, building products on the web in particular, uh, really uh, blossomed from there. I started a company uh, that went through Y Combinator in 2012. I also participated in the Teal Fellowship by leaving college for a bit. And f during that time as well, I was introduced to the Silk Road, uh, which kind of was my intro to Bitcoin, needing to uh, find my way into bars to uh, dance around the topic as an under 21 year old. The Silk Road uh, provided that access. And in order to transact there, you needed something called Bitcoin. And I had no idea what it was at the time, but it obviously let me kind of participate in the economy as I wanted to. And uh, I just had been tracking the project ever since. My interest in internet marketing continued. Uh, and ever since, I've just kind of pursued a career in, in growth marketing and uh, have had a, a really intense focus on the Bitcoin developments as well. That's amazing. Yeah. So are you are you a developer as well? Like on top of being a growth marketer? Are you kind of like the, uh, you know, that's like what everybody says is like the holy grail. You can have both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just sort of uh, always looked at it like I have a very uh, strong interest in making a business impact. But the way to do that, at least in in today's economy, is really through code. Uh, it's where you can get the highest leverage, meaning you, know, you can do something today that just continues to repeat on and on and on through a script. And uh, it's amazing how uh, so many huge companies today, they're, you know, people joke about how developers are paid so much to write a simple Python script that does X, Y, and Z. But in reality, that's, you know, that's a uh, technology at work that's, uh, you know, the mechanization of a repetitive process and so I've uh, definitely taken that route as being a developer and growth marketer and 
using code to to drive uh, business outcomes is sort of my shtick. I feel like it's almost a uh, essential skill at this point to be a growth market. I'm, I'm kind of a similar background as well, where it's like I actually started off as a engineer, then went to the growth side. But it's similar observation where, yeah, the leverage thing and then also the fact that this is kind of how the you know, what's running the world. And so it's hard to grow that without understanding, you know, the pieces behind the scenes, you're kind of always operating at a disadvantage. And it's, uh, it's a great skill to have both. One thing I wanted to dig into when you mentioned the background that I didn't know. So Silk Road was your introduction to it. Was that like, what time period was that? Was that like, po- like around a few years after the financial crisis, like, you know, 2012, 2013, like, at what point was this in sort of the, the Bitcoin development? Yeah, this was 2012. So it was after the first uh, pump uh, or the first hype cycle bull run. Bitcoin had crashed down to around $10 or $9. And uh, I needed, you know, X number of Bitcoin to purchase my ID. And uh, so I did that uh, several times. And I didn't think too much of it again. I just sort of, you know, it, it was kind of like this insane process looking back basically in order to buy bitcoin you would go to one of the exchange websites they would say hey all right how much bitcoin do you want in us dollars you would agree and then you would actually just wire money to their bank account uh, directly and just kind of hope and pray that they would send you bitcoin in return which is totally different than how it works today oh yeah i mean now we have so many other tools i i actually learned about it at a very similar time i was but i kind of came at it from a different angle like i had learned about the whole like ron paul movement in 2012 and i knew all about bitcoin through that movement and never bought one at that time because of how sketchy the buying process was it was like hey you can send yeah you can wire somebody some money on the internet and hope and pray that they transfer you this <laughs> this uh digital token basically that you know at the time it was like i didn't know enough about it to really understand the underlying mechanics and I was like, you know what, even if this is like $50, like I was a college student at the time, I'm like, I'd rather not lose my $50 to some scammer on the internet. Yeah. But now I think back, I like probably just drank with those $50. So it's like, what would, you know, what would have been better? But uh, that's interesting. I feel like a lot of people find out about it through a couple different ways. And your, your method, it's kind of interesting because you were actually using it as a currency, as a tool, essentially, not as a speculation mechanism. Yeah, and I think that's where I disagree with you know a lot of the critics. They're they're coming out of the gate right right at me or whoever's supporting Bitcoin, saying, "Hey, there's no use case for this." And I think it just comes from uh, a place of financial privilege or some other privilege in other areas of your life. Because the reality is that a lot of people are blocked out of transactions for arbitrary reasons relating to their geography, their age, their race, their class, and so. I look at it as like, you can't stop someone from sending Bitcoin to another person. And I think that's sort of like kind of ground zero. That's, that's amazing. Censorship. <laughs> that's like the most beautiful piece. I mean, there's different pieces of that we've dug into on the show, but not, not to the point, to your point, like that is kind of ground zero of what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin more so than any other financial instrument I think that's ever existed besides maybe cash and cash is you know, cash or gold, I guess, but those are not digitally transferable across distances. And cash has its own downsides of it's usually a fiat cash. So, so that's a whole different can of worms, not even talking about the, uh, you know, the censorship resistant piece. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The uh, gold bars, uh, last time I checked, weren't too easy to, uh, you know, move from no. point to point B. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and that's a confiscation proof as well in the sense that, you know, gold bars, it's whoever has the guns can a little more easily grab those than they can, you know, a phrase from your head. Uh, although that, I will say that that is still a, a threat, but a, a threat on a scale uh, that is, you know, if you think about it, there's millions and millions of probably tens of millions of Bitcoin holders around the world who hold some form of, you know, some level of Bitcoin. It's like, are you really going to physically attack all of them? Probably physically cannot do that. Costs too much energy. There's somebody, I think Safadine or somebody has done a like, they, they have like a phrase that they use for this. It's like hitting people with baseball bats or something. You can't really do that across tens of millions of people. <laughs> That is the ultimate threat for Bitcoin, really. I think uh, someone putting a gun to your head and uh, you know making you spit up the uh, the wallet phrase. But you could have multiple wallets, even, and I think it, the attack surface is just too broad uh, to fully confiscate everything. Exactly. So, okay, so like getting out of the background piece a, a little bit, like now moving to there's a company that you started. I want to say 2019, but maybe it was earlier than that. Called Encrypted Energy. That was a, or is, you know, a Bitcoin mining company. I know you and I have talked a bit about that. Like one, maybe introduce the company a little bit. And then the second thing is any listener who's familiar with Bitcoin mining in September 2022 knows it's kind of being hit by this dual threat of, you know, the price has kind of come down uh, quite a bit of Bitcoin as so has every single, you know, asset out there. But then combine that with the cost of energy worldwide, uh, less so in America, but it definitely has gone up in America as well. Cost of energy has risen, and energy is a key input of Bitcoin mining. So, with that bit of background, maybe introduce encrypted mining, encrypted energy a bit, and yeah, like how are you dealing with those kind of challenges and headwinds these days? Yeah, so along my journey, I had done some growth marketing at DigitalOcean, a cloud computing company, and uh, through that experience, being in their data centers, of course, everyone's heard the term cloud and whatnot, but seeing it firsthand is a different kind of brings everything to life. And through that, I was able to kind of gain the confidence to say, hey, I can I could build my own data center if I really wanted to as well. And that's where uh, the whole Bitcoin mining thing came in. I said, hey, you know, I know about Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining. Well, Bitcoin's already kind of obtruse. Bitcoin mining, like very few people are scratching the surface on that globally. And so I said, all right, I know how to build a data center. I know a little bit about Bitcoin. Why don't I try to combine these two interests and uh, you know give it a go myself? And so yeah, I uh, bought a house in uh, in northern Maine just to uh, you know kind of test out my hypothesis and name the company Encrypted Energy and just kind of kickstarted from there. Unfortunately, I think over the last year things were looking really positive uh, a year ago, as pretty much any asset was, uh, meaning that the arbitrage on the price of electricity compared to the price of Bitcoin. It just seemed like basically a money printer, and it was for a, a, you know, a limited amount of time. But to your point, Neil, yeah, there's kind of this double uh, threat right now to the whole mining industry, which is global energy prices are rising and the price of Bitcoin is way down. So only the most efficient miners are gonna survive this kind of down run for how, however long it lasts. And it's very challenging, I think. We'll see a lot of people uh, closing up shop. Yeah. And I think, I mean, maybe let's take a, even a step back further and like talk about why there's a, so one, how energy plays a role in Bitcoin mining, because I think that's maybe potentially obvious to us, but not necessarily everyone listening. 
and then sort of how the the output so the bitcoin price impacts how a miner operates in the miners margins so maybe even just introducing bitcoin mining would be a really good a really good place to start here because i think once it clicks for somebody that this is sort of how it works then they see this dual threat and they're like oh wow this is actually not just really a problem for companies that have gone into bitcoin mining but also potentially from an ecosystem standpoint and um, you know the goal of this show one of the goals at least is to inspire more people to build in sort of outside of the traditional system and my hope is you know you make the problems more easy to understand for people and they will go hopefully go build solutions so that's you know maybe taking a step back and, and elaborating on the problem might uh, might inspire some people yeah so with bitcoin mining in particular bitcoin is decentralized uh, first of all so there's no central database uh, by comparison if you bank with a retail bank let's say bank of america or wells fargo they maintain a central database that is a ledger of all the transactions for their customers uh, and also between banks with bitcoin it's decentralized so the database uh, is not owned by any one person instead it's owned by the each participant on the network has a fully in order to participate with bitcoin you have to have a fully up-to-date uh, node is what they're called and mining is really competing to verify the next set of transactions that will be added to the decentralized database, uh, aka Bitcoin's blockchain. About every 10 minutes, there's a new Bitcoin block mined, and miners are competing around the world. Geography is completely independent of Bitcoin mining. They're competing to produce the next block that contains new transactions that have uh, been added to the network in the last 10 minutes or, or so. The computers needed to produce the next block at this point have become so specialized that uh, today we call them Bitcoin mining machines. Uh, it's the equivalent of if you had a, a laptop, a MacBook, or a ThinkPad uh, that had almost no storage and RAM, but just like went souped up on the CPU to produce as much work as possible. And so Bitcoin miners uh, producing a computational hashes that try to prove the next block. And that's called the proof of work when the, the miner guesses the, the next hash correctly. That's the proof of work uh, known in, in Bitcoin world. And just to run these machines requires a massive amount of electricity. The, the top of market machine uses uh, 3.2 kilowatts an hour. That's about as much electricity uh, a typical house, house in the US uses it in a whole day. That's just one machine. Bitcoin mining facility probably has how many machines would you say? I mean, maybe there's not a typical, but like what, what, did, your, what did you guys run? Yeah, so we are uh, just uh, working off uh, kind of a normal residential transformer. Uh, a typical US house has a 25 or 50 kW transformer. And with that power uh, to, you know, to an average listener, out there, you could probably run between eight and 16, let's call it between 10 and 20 Bitcoin mining machines, depending on the transformer that's connected to your house. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from all this is uh, I grew up, you know, just uh, taking electricity for granted. You know, you want power, you plug it in the wall and then uh, you're good. Once you need an industrial load of electricity, you start seeing the physical limits of the world that we operate in. Yeah, I think that's been like underappreciated among people in tech like us who've kind of grown up in tech. And you just kind of assume there's like this difference in the world of like atoms and, and bits. I'm not obviously the first person to talk about this, but it's, you know, the 
in the digital world, right, there's a lot of things which are kind of infinite that you can take for granted and well, effectively infinite. Maybe they're not truly infinite. But in the physical world, there are so many constraints like, you know, to your point about electricity, probably there's things around like cooling. I know you and I have had an interesting conversation in the past about why, you know, you set up shop in Maine versus somewhere else because Bitcoin, you know, miners heat up and then that's a whole nother concern. But these are things which, you know, if you're just running code, you might not, you, you don't have to think about because you have a sort of sandbox environment almost to, to operate in uh, versus, you know, in real life, planet Earth has its own constraints that, that you have to, you have to live with. But yeah, you're, you're so right. Like, yeah, these are, when we think about electricity, we just think about it being, you know, limitless. Like, yeah, I need to charge my phone or I need to turn on this TV or computer or whatever. It's, it's just there. But when you start talking about larger scales, it's, I mean, even just something as simple as a transformer, I mean, that's kind of your peak, right? Of what you're able to, to pull into that house. So you need a different type of, uh, sorry, you need to increase, you probably need like a commercial facility or industrial facility to go beyond that 10 to 20 machines level. Yeah, exactly. And that's where sort of uh, when you talk about Bitcoin mining, what you quickly get into, it's it's a lot more work than just the machines. The machines are sort of like you can buy those uh, from any uh, e-commerce uh, website specializing in Bitcoin mining today. But the power is something that it's this infinitely, infinitely complex uh, question that's constantly um, unending and like incomplete. When you talk about power, you're talking about Power, first of all, you know, electricity can really only tra- travel about 500 miles uh, efficiently. Every time the electricity goes on the on the distribution lines, it's losing electricity as heat. Likewise with the transmission line. So the transmission line, taking it from the source. So in the Northeast, let's say in a place like Maine, they rely on a lot of hydro coming from Canada or natural gas uh, or biomass, uh, aka wood chips. There's a power plant that produces electricity. And the power plant then puts their their output electricity onto transmission lines, which take the electricity to a local market. For example, your city. Your city will then have a transformer which steps down steps down the electricity to uh, the distribution lines. Those are the telephone poles you see in your local neighborhood, and the distribution lines then distribute the electricity directly to your house. And so each step is very complicated, and um, there's various economics in each part. And from what I've learned so far, you want to be as close to that power generation as possible, first of all, so you don't have to pay transmission fees. Uh, you want to be near a, a power source that uh, is stable. So that's where the whole question of why isn't solar and wind such a great thing after all? And then, yeah, you want a source, as you know, going back to the source, you want a source that uh, is not going to be impacted uh, so much by global market forces. So things like hydro, at least in a place where it rains a lot, are pretty stable. But inevitably, a lot of the questions kind of come back to why aren't we using more nuclear, which can be used anywhere. Uh, maybe this is a little bit outside the uh, both of our expertise areas, but why do you think nuclear isn't used more given, you know, a lot of the green goals that are, that are out there. And is it, is it like a lobbying thing? Is it a education thing? You know, is it just sort of bad marketing? Sometimes I feel like it's just bad marketing when people hear nuclear, they just picture a mushroom cloud and, uh, (laughs) and it's just one of those things. They need a new uh, marketing agency, but exactly what you said, like, if you dive into this long enough, that's the question that pops up is like, Hey, this is kind of a perfect solution. Maybe not perfect, but 
it's the better solution than a lot of the other current solutions. Yeah, nuclear does need a little bit of water for cooling, but still not that much. Yeah, I think the problem is it's just political support. And I think that's where anyone who kind of comes at world issues from the perspective of, you know, I'm not interested in politics. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have a big influence. I think that they're wrong because just uh, one issue like nuclear, it doesn't have, uh, it, it would need bipartisan support in any geography, whether on the federal, municipal, or local level to uh, actually see movement and we just don't see any like advocacy groups actually succeeding. In fact, it's the opposite. People, the opposition is is succeeding in shutting nuclear down. And so I think, yeah, it's a marketing problem. Um, and I think what is kind of uh, optimistic, though, is the nuclear on a, on a more local level. So the city of Boise, Idaho, actually, they've approved a uh, modular nucle- nuclear reactor, which it's really designed to power just like the, the immediate city of Boise rather than kind of like. I was saying earlier, a 500 mile radius. So hopefully, you know, smart cities will, uh, or smart leaders in smaller cities will kind of bubble to the top and say, hey, you know, if you live here, you'll benefit from a lot cheaper and more stable power. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like maybe, you know, I mean, this is would not be a good thing, but if the US had a energy crisis to kind of show the, uh, you know, I, I say this on, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to give the caveat to it on the other end of it is, like sometimes you feel like the energy crisis would make people take energy less for granted, right? Like if there was a crisis in terms of costs, like what the UK or, or Europe is seeing right now, um, or if there was a you know a, a true rationing of power in the same way that again the UK is talking about at the moment, that would open up people's eyes to the reality that yeah, this is a finite you know kind of resource that finite in the sense that like it is you know real life decisions impact whether you're able to turn on your TV or you know, charge your phone um, and at what cost, you know, it is to do that. And I actually think it's not even about those. Those things are probably even less of an issue than things like food, transportation, heating and cooling, right? Like, I mean, we take a lot of these things for granted, but like we live in a very controlled environment just with the fact that we have AC and heating, especially like, I mean, I don't know if you're still in New York, but it's like, you know, New York in the dead of summer is an awful place to be outside in the, in the real world temperature. And then in the winter, it's cold uh, and it's really nice to have heating and not be in that, you know, below 32 degrees temperature all the time. So we kind of take that for granted. Yeah. And the caveat to the energy crisis thing is like, I do at the same time think if something like that happened, it would probably be spun as being the fault of like Bitcoin miners or something for why there's an energy shortage <laughs> or energy got so expensive. So it's like good and bad. I feel like a crisis could actually make things worse too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I mean, we're seeing it, yeah, sort of in local geographies today, like in California, there are shortages and Texas has had its fair share of issues, but has been friendly with the Bitcoin miners to uh, you know get their help. Yeah, I think it's complicated. I think energy kind of going back to the physical limits, it's like, Every 500 mile, you know, area has its own set of limitations and supply and demand uh, issues. So, I mean, even like Florida today, you know, with the Hurricane Ian, you know, the the people in Fort Myers or Cape Coral, whatever, they could be you know out of power for weeks, and that's sort of where it makes you realize, like, hey, like this is electricity. I can't, we can't just take it for granted. We need to invest consistently into our infrastructure and focus on the solutions that are you know, actually reliable and affordable. 
So Boise is an interesting example. I didn't know about that. That's a pretty cool thing to see. I wonder, I mean, maybe some of this too is just like emergent. You know, some places do a better job of it than others. Other people in other places see that and they say, hey, why don't, why aren't we doing that? Right. And then they, they sort of copy it because it's working better than what they're doing. So it might, some of this just might take time or be emergent also and just sort of play out in, in the results. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, also uh, it's easy to complain, but I think one of the things that kind of helps rationalize things is people are just acting in their own interest. So in Maine, for example, they kind of, they voted down a transmission line from Canada uh, providing clean hydro. But the, the transmission line, the endpoint was really in, in Massachusetts. And so the main voters were dissuaded by uh, knowing that the electricity wouldn't be produced in their state. So it wouldn't create as many jobs for people in Maine. And I mean, that alone was like enough to, you know, kind of turn down the vote. Whereas hopefully in the future, they'll, they'll like maybe be more publicly supportive of generation assets in state that benefit you know, them individually. Yeah, I think on a long enough timeline, this will start making sense. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, it's the same thing, honestly, with, um, and, the, you know, let's probably won't spend too much time on this part because you and I could talk about this for probably two hours. It's kind of the same thing with like fiat money, right? It's like, uh, if you were sort of in the space 10 years ago, you were saying the same things that are literally happening right now. And you were, you know, you could see, it, it's not that nobody saw this stuff coming. It's like, you could see it coming, but you know you needed the time, like long enough time span to, to actually see that emerge. And honestly, like, who knows? Maybe this is just like there's one more cycle left before before things actually um, go where you know a lot of uh, Bitcoiners think they would go. But you know, it's just interesting that you know ten years ago people were talking about this, but you sounded like a crazy person if you said this ten years ago, and here we are ten years later, and inflation is something that's you know in the news every second of every day, basically. And it's hitting every single country. So it's like, yeah, Bitcoiners were talking about this a long time ago and nobody was taking it seriously. Going from that, what we were just talking about with the mining and energy to something that I think actually is a lot more... So that was the, the you know the um, negative part of our conversation. I think the positive part of our conversation, which I'm really super excited to talk about with you, is lightning. So lightning, I think, is... For those that aren't familiar, it's kind of, and John, I'm sure you can actually even explain this way better than me, but it's kind of like being used as an L2, level two of Bitcoin, primarily for payments at incredibly fast payments, as well as very low fee payments. So it's kind of facilitating commerce on top of the Bitcoin network versus sort of the standard Bitcoin network, which takes, you know, as we talked about 10 minutes for a block to clear and, uh, you know, maybe isn't as useful from a instant payment perspective. Whereas Lightning is kind of built to solve solve that need. The thing that's super cool about Lightning that John has been talking about publicly a lot, and you know, and John, please elaborate on this, is all the sort of business models that emerge from this sort of next level of technology of Bitcoin. And it isn't just limited to payments, which is I think the the sort of eye opener, John, that I saw from your your account recently is just like I started thinking through some of the implications as well. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time thinking about it where it's like the infrastructure that's going to be required, how it impacts taxes and where, you know, nodes are routing. So yeah, maybe let's talk about lightning for a bit. Like, you know, what's exciting you about it? How are you thinking about it? And how does it, how does it actually shape the future in a positive way and solve some of the problems we've been talking about? Yeah. So if I were to go back in time and start with mining over again, I think I would start with the energy source. I would figure out how to produce energy 
cheaply and reliably. It's sort of everything we just talked about. And uh, uh, the reason is that because at that point you could sell, there's a, there's a ready demand for electricity in pretty much every place that has resident people living. So uh, you could sell to the Bitcoin network or the people or in the businesses in the local area. But to do that, that's very capital intensive. To make a power plant, you need at least $10 million to kind of build even like a, a small scale power plant uh, that produces, let's say, like one megawatt of energy continuously. Really solid business as far as you know, the cash flow, like you can do it very profitably, but you need $10 million. And so coming from my perspective, I was like, well, you know, how do I find my wedge into this Bitcoin world uh, as far as a business without spending $10 million on a bet? That's where lightning came in. I was like, hmm, okay. If we have energy prices in mining kind of uh, really taking its toll in one area, lightning by comparison is growing. This is really interesting. We have a, a new technology that's growing in a down market for an asset. That must mean that there, there has to be some utility there. There's no kind of other way around it other than someone really spoofing the numbers. And so Lightning is also capital intensive, but in a different way. You don't need $10 million to get going uh, with Lightning. To get going with Lightning, all you need is a Raspberry Pi, frankly, a, a home computer, the laptop you may be uh, listening to this podcast on. That's enough to run a Lightning node. The idea with Lightning is, is really it's solving the problem that you just talked about, Neil. Bitcoin, if you're to transact on-chain, takes about 10 minutes to confirm the transaction. Lightning uh, is about fast payments. So that's the primary value. You can transact very quickly for a penny or less. Everything eventually gets recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, when what's called a channel and the Lightning network is, is settled and closed out. So everything is native to Bitcoin. Uh, the payments operate very quickly uh, and for low cost. And that presents just a, like a really a technological advancement uh, that was not possible 10 years ago. And so there's, yeah, well, we can get into it as far as a variety of businesses that will support the Lightning ecosystem and also just like ideas that were not possible until you know, now Lightning uh, may become a thing. Yeah, let's get into it. So yeah, like what are some of the businesses that you think, you know, can emerge on top of this? And I, I always, as I've been thinking about Lightning and, you know, any of sort of the, the latest developments on the Bitcoin ecosystem, it's like, that was the foundational layer was the invention of Bitcoin, sort of the the adoption of like the infrastructure layer, which was the mining ecosystem and, you know, all the things that are necessary to secure the network, the education, just making, you know, people aware that this thing exists, how it works. Also, what we talked about earlier, where buying Bitcoin used to be like the sketchy ass process, like you just have to wire someone some money and hopefully they send it to you. All the way to now, it's like, okay, it's easy to buy, easy to get involved. It's generally pretty easy to educate yourself on what it is and how it works. But now it's like, okay, you have that infrastructure. Now, what do you go do with it? Right. And that's kind of how I think about lightning is like the start of that question of what do you go do with that now? And yeah, let's get into like, what are some of the businesses that you see and some of the, the impacts and then, you know, what's missing today as far as you can see, just like, you know, if somebody went back to 2012, it's like, easy user-friendly exchanges are such an obvious pain point at that time if this is ever going to get adoption where it's like we can't have this situation where i'm wiring some random person on craigslist some money and ever get you know real adoption out the uh out the back of that so 
So first of all, what's it being used for today? So really the primary users today are traders. So people that want to move funds between exchanges in, prior to Lightning in order to move Bitcoin on chain from one exchange to another to, to exploit an arbitrage in the price of whatever assets are being traded. Minimum 10 minutes, uh, likely an hour sort of type of uh, you know, transaction time to confirm the chain uh, funds on chain. With Lightning, the funds can be transferred within a second or two seconds. And so obviously that's orders of magnitude uh, improvement and also for a lower cost. So Lightning is being used by traders to move funds back and forth very quickly. That presents a huge sort of volume of, uh, of the payments today. And then separately, I think what a lot of people are kind of moving or you know, are hopeful towards and building towards is the is just the day to day commerce. So you know when you're on El Zante in El Salvador and you're wanting to interact with the uh, coffee shop, the, you know the typical example of how any monetary system works. The question is like how does that how does that coffee vendor uh, actually set up on Lightning? It's complicated today. So there's obvious businesses to be built to be let's say the Shopify of a uh, you know, mom and pop stores, uh, brick and mortar stores uh, provide that square point of sale type of system. And then there's a separate type of business, which is a routing node, which is facilitating liquidity between merchants and payees uh, in the network. And that's where a lot of my focus has been as of late, simply because there's a lot of opportunity to automate some of the repetitive tasks in there and just also get a better understanding of what is actually happening in this network? Because it's really uh, difficult coming as a new person to understand like how payments are actually moving and what's the right, who are the right nodes to uh, you know actually interact with. To your point about the Shopify for Lightning example, I was at a farmer's market in New York like a few weeks ago and I noticed every single booth or table that was set up was charging extra money for credit card transactions, or they were giving a discount for cash. They were, you know, the same thing. Net, it comes out to the same thing. You know, that's because they their margins, I'm sure, are getting squeezed. They don't want to have if you pay with credit card, they're not going to see the money in their bank account for several days. Take some time to settle, and the advantage of just getting cash is you get the money right now and don't have to pay that credit card fee. My thought immediately went to like, why isn't every single vendor here accepting Lightning? Like, I would. Like letting people pay with Lightning, I would pay with Lightning to every single one that was, you know, accepting it. And they don't have to pay much in terms of transaction fees. They could get, they could settle very, very quickly into their account. I think the it's education piece is one one thing that's missing. Another thing that's missing is sort of the easy to your point about the Shopify thing. Like Shopify sort of made it very easy for anybody to just start an e-commerce store. And I think like that equivalent company in the Lightning space as far as I know, it doesn't exist yet. I, I could be completely wrong about that. But it's like, the, they need almost like the square of lightning that's going to just make this, you know, super simple, whether that's hardware plus, and it's probably gonna be a hardware plus software thing. Or, I mean, I don't even think they need a special piece of hardware, but just need essentially QR codes to make it work. Yeah, it has to work really well and be user friendly and be able to onboard merchants and let them uh, exchange back into fiat if they want really quickly. I think yeah, you brought up a good point there as well. The finality of it is huge. I think like one of my inspirations for you know getting into lightning as well was talking with one of my friends who started the company Mudwater. It's a mushroom alternative to coffee, and 
their sales are almost uh, 100% online. And uh, he was just telling me like, John, we spend millions of dollars on credit card fees every year. And going back in time, credit cards at one point were in an innovation, you get credit for, you know, having a stable job, basically. But at this point today, their fees, they only increase 3%, let's say on a typical transaction. And lightning, uh, typical payments are being routed for 0.3%. So 10 times less. Yeah, eventually, merchants are going to prefer to accept a payment where they're potentially saving thousands of dollars on fees. Let's say you're, you're buying uh, something very expensive, not a car necessarily, but um, uh, let's say like a vacation you know, for five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. If you don't have to have that credit card fee, you don't have the risk of the chargeback someone eventually is going to act in their own best interest and go with the uh, the lightning option. Definitely. And then can you talk a little bit more about the routing nodes aspect that you've been digging more into? Yeah. So I think uh, in order to facilitate payments, in order to facilitate payments between two merchants or, you know, paying a, a merchant, you need to provide liquidity in the network, meaning post up Bitcoin sats in the lightning network so that you can say, Person A owes person B and this transaction occurred and it's settled. So someone in the middle has to kind of provide those Bitcoin up for transacting if the, the two people don't directly have a channel open with each other. There is now this cottage industry of people running Bitcoin nodes, meaning they're putting up their own personal Bitcoin to facilitate these payments and they're taking a tiny toll in the middle. And I think this is sort of what led me on to the network state, which Balaji talks a lot about. In the future, I believe these nodes are going to, they're going to be mostly in these tax uh, advantage locations like Dubai, like Cayman Islands, like Belize, Bahamas, British Virgin Islands. Because what you're seeing as far as tax law in the US is a lot of the uh, guidance is showing that the, the tax on transactions is being taxed at the, uh, the location of the node itself that is providing that final settlement. So by so, putting it in a friendly jurisdiction, you're basically getting yourself that tax advantage. Yeah, exactly. You're saying, hey, you know, I uh, run, you know, an ice cream shop in New Jersey, but my legal entity is in Bermuda. So that's where the transaction settled. Got it. So it's almost like the thing that I think Google was famous for doing this, where like all the ad revenue is routing through like Ireland or something like that for a long time for that same reason, for a similar reason, I would imagine it's a tax related reason. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's where the nodes will kind of like, they will develop to the point where they'll kind of gravitate towards these tax advantage locations. Uh, and running a node is a simple, again, you're, you're not using that much uh, compute or storage. Right, it's not uh, a miner, it's not a miner. Right, so you know you can run one of these for, let's say, even if you rented a computer for like 50, 100 bucks a month at most, or plug it in somewhere uh, for very cheap. From my perspective, there's there's opportunity to provide services to these routing nodes that will become very lucrative over time uh, in the same way that Visa, MasterCard, American Express have become you know, multi-billion dollar companies. That makes complete sense. I mean, do you feel that you need that sort of more widespread lightning adoption first, or do you feel like the market is kind of the early adopter segment of that market is already ready for you know, these sort of next stage of businesses to be built on top of this? Because I feel like the first step is this adoption step. And I'm not saying you can't run them in parallel because there already are plenty of people using Lightning and maybe you start with them and providing the services to them. Do you feel personally where we are on the adoption curve is kind of 
like there's people are ready for things like that? Or is it still like you're, you know, you got to go out and like educate and like when you're having these conversations, do people know what you're talking about generally? Or is it like you, you find yourself educating folks? Yeah, I think people who are aware of Bitcoin have heard about lightning, but they're they're not quite sure how it works or they haven't done any payments. So I think that we're we're really early on. We're like where Bitcoin was in like 2012, 2013. We're you know, 10 years. We're in the early days of Lightning. And so Lightning Labs is the company that has developed Lightning, um, or at least this LND software that runs on the Lightning Network. And so they're sort of like one of the leaders. Uh, Strike, you've heard about many times in the Bitcoins. They just raised a huge round too. Series B, I think, round. Right. So they're famous for saying like, hey, like in order to do cross-border transactions as far as bank wires, that will take days. It's super frustrating. We're just going to open up bank accounts in a bunch of different countries. And so we'll transact between those countries by uh, using Lightning. And so they're making remittances a lot faster. They also just opened up an API so that potentially someone could build that square point of sale uh, using their their node, uh, where they provide all the liquidity and just facilitate the invoices. And then Voltage is a is a uh, infrastructure company that I've been tracking very closely. That's providing those nodes as a service, just out of the typical Google Cloud data centers so far. But they're also getting into metrics, which I think is sort of one of the more unexplored and uh, bigger opportunities available. So yeah, I think we're early on. I think uh, it remains to see, be seen like what is going to be like sort of that Coinbase where Coinbase provided a uh, web-based Bitcoin wallet that kind of really helped the trajectory grow. And I, I think, yeah, it's going to come down to people's own incentives. When they when they say, hey, I can I can earn 3 4 5%, 10% yield on my Bitcoin with no counterparty risk. Why would I invest in a bond with a company that can go under? if I could do Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that sort of understanding is starting to become more apparent because it was, I feel like when you were telling people about this, when every asset was going up, it was like, well, why would I not put it, you know, into this asset that's grow, you know, growing at 20% a year, 30% a year, whatever, or, you know, the whole, the, the, again, this is a topic, probably it's a whole separate podcast between us, but into some shit coin that, gives you 40% APY, but then loses, you know, 80% of its value. <laughs> um, people didn't see that when everything was going up, right? Because you just, you, you don't think about those risks. And I think this sort of past three months or price three months, three quarters that everybody has lived through on the investing side, it's like, yeah, things don't always go up all the time. So thinking about counterparty risk and what you're actually buying makes a huge difference. But that's one complaint I do hear sometimes about Bitcoin to your point is, you know, well, these other coins, I can earn a lot of yield by staking it. And I can't do that with Bitcoin. And so yeah, you're to- you're right, like, as these use cases start becoming more easy, to- easier to use, you know, you'll probably get that'll probably increase adoption as well. What about like use cases that are and this is related to our I mean, you know, what I do even on this podcast. So we use fountain for tipping and we don't really monetize the podcast any other way. So Fountain is basically like a decentralized way for people to support their favorite podcasters over Lightning. And so basically you can either tip your favorite podcasters with something called a boost, or you can stream them value uh, for every minute that you listen to the podcast. And that uses Lightning. And when I first saw Fountain, to me, it was like, oh, wow, like if you can actually stream value with very low fees and very low, like extremely low to the point where it almost rounds to zero, the things you can go do with that are just like 
it's just like an exponential difference from what you could do without that. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't do this model where I'm streaming or I'm sending somebody, you know, five sats for every minute that I listen to their podcast because five sats is like, I believe, you know, way under even like a cent. You just can't do that with a credit card or, or like ACH or anything like that. It just isn't even possible. So it's interesting, like the use cases, you know, whether that's even like, um, what are those called? Like microtransactions for unlocking like articles what are some of the other sort of second order use cases that that this sort of payments technology could enable or, or you're already seeing in terms of other projects people are working on uh, that maybe aren't as mainstream as Fountain, but maybe there's some other things that are, people have started or tried recently that are sort of second order innovation on top of Lightning? Yeah, I think a lot of it uh, is just kind of typical consumer things like, you know, pay for your time, play, pay to get access to my email inbox. Yeah, kind of blocking things there. I mean... The average credit card transaction is about 60 US dollars. So uh, you can see there that Lightning will likely win just because it will enable a lot of these uh, digital transactions to occur uh, at the lower end. I'm not exactly sure what, you know, will be the key use cases to unlock on the consumer level, but I do know like it's just going to invert a lot of things. So today, for example, if some payroll providers, they provide the opportunity to get like your payroll two weeks in advance in exchange for paying, let's say, one to two percent of whatever your earnings are. Lightning will invert that. It will say like, hey, like you want to wait two weeks to get your payroll? Like you can earn a bonus of two percent because you we can guarantee that, you know, this liquidity is going to help the network you know, facilitate X number of payments in between uh, and you, you can get paid more. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you can do both. You can, it'll flow both ways, not just pay us and you will give you the extra liquidity uh, or the liquidity faster. Just kind of like if you cash out from Venmo or something, right? It's like, if you want to wait three to five days, it's free. If you want your money instantly, you know, it's like 3% or whatever they charge. You're saying you could potentially invert that as like, Hey, you want your money slower. We will pay you to do that. We'll pay pay more. Yeah. Yeah. Like just keep keep it there. Like for a little bit longer, We're, we're earning money on it. Yeah. So I think there, there's going to be a lot of things like that. It really will probably most likely start with some higher end purchases that really kind of tip the adoption spear where the credit card fees are just like absolutely, uh, you know, eating the lunch of some vendor. Let's say they get a jewelry store or something like that. Like they were sort of the, some of the first people to accept Bitcoin. I could definitely see that being the case. I mean, even, even B2B transactions, I could see like, for example, I mean, one of my, one of my businesses, we try to take everything because it's a, it's an enterprise uh, company, like we sell to enterprise. So typically it's higher ticket purchases, but one of our customers is paying us monthly. And it was a big enough customer that it made sense to kind of carve out a special case for them. Normally we require it's like annualized, but, um, and it's just a single ACH payment that we sort of require them to do. But this one customer they wanted to pay by credit card. That was like a deal breaker for them to not be able to pay by credit card. And they wanted to pay monthly. It was a big enough customer that it made sense to do it. But every time they pay, it's a 3K a month transaction. And every time they pay, it's $90 of fees that I pay every single time. And it's like, it feels so dumb. It's like, why am I like I'm paying them? I'm getting $90 less every single month <laughs> than I would literally just for this payment to go through. But, you know, sometimes you just have to eat it. But I would gladly rather give them a $45 a month discount to just pay me with Lightning. You know, it's just, I would let them pay less and I would take a little less and, you know, not have to pay the credit card company. Yeah, exactly. I have a renter at my house in uh, Maine as well. And uh, 
they insisted paying over check in uh, in the U.S. mail and everything. And I think you know my next step is like, hey, like I'll just save myself the headache, save you, you know, the trip to the post office if you know you just get a discount by yeah, installing this app on your phone. Yeah, I have a question though. How like so? For example, like this sort of seems like an obvious next step on top of this infrastructure is like how well designed or or is there a well designed app that kind of works with businesses on the accounting side of this? Because there's probably the, you know, we made this payment, let's say we paid, you know, one Bitcoin, for example, for this service, that price changes all the time and you have to report your earnings in dollars. So you kind of need to record that transaction with the current Bitcoin price at that time, at that moment in time, right? Is you always need like an extra layer of accounting software. Is anyone working on that or is that being built into existing accounting software? Or like, how is that ecosystem as far? I mean, if you know, if you don't know, that's fine, too. Maybe it's an opportunity for somebody to build. I, yeah, I think it's an opportunity. I think accounting is a huge opportunity. You know, the infrastructure for the nodes, authorization of the nodes, or like how you have some of these you know, identity management companies today. Same thing with like access to your nodes in the future. Metrics, you know, understanding what's happening in the, in the network in your node. There's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, the sort of the Shopify thing. On that note, I actually think sort of the first companies to adopt this may be the, mine, the mining companies themselves, the energy companies. Uh, you know, if you have Exxon, they're mining in the oil field and they start saying, hey, why isn't our retail business, you know, benefiting from this as well? It could be. That's really interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. And jewelry, to your point, jewelry is another interesting one because it's a high ticket item. There is actually a decent amount of online commerce with it and people are paying with credit cards. So it's like an easy place for them to you know, probably offer some savings to the customer. It's like, hey, you pay with Lightning, get $100 off or whatever, and save themselves probably a few hundred dollars in fees every time someone's buying, you know, a 10K thing online or something. Yeah, they're acting in their own interest. They're they're getting a larger share of what they're, you know, they've sold, frankly. And they get the finality, like, you know, they don't have the, they don't have to deal with the chargeback. Yeah, that's a great point too, because for that high ticket item, that's a much bigger problem <laughs> with the chargeback. It's not like a, you're selling a t-shirt. I mean, if you believe that people over time, you know, act selfishly in their own interests, I think uh, it's sort of a no-brainer. Like, And it just it remains to be seen who are going to be the most forward-thinking and early adopting folks. But it's already happening at the trading level. Traders, you know, more than anyone else, they're constantly looking for an edge and a way to do things more efficiently. So it will bubble down uh, eventually to uh, consumers and businesses uh, in the next probably two to three years. Yeah, it makes total sense. So as we wrap up, a couple last questions for you. So you tweeted something recently that I thought was fascinating, but I want you to sort of expand on it because I had some uh, thoughts, but I, wanna, I wanted to see where you go with it. You tweeted, build a product that is a database in disguise, right? If you could go back, you'd build a product that's a database in disguise. What do you mean by that? Expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, sort of in the in the data world, there's a lot of uh, well, a lot of people kind of say this saying that data has gravity and sort of uh, once you stuff data into somewhere, it's not going anywhere uh, anytime soon. And you know, look at companies like Oracle. Even Amazon was built on Oracle. Zoom uses Oracle uh, as well. Databases, sort of, from my experience, what I found have kind of provided uh, these extremely like lucrative, uh, long-lasting, and enduring, uh, yeah, enduring businesses. And so, my latest growth marketing uh, gig is at Grafana Labs, a, a company that provides dashboards that you can kind of monitor your uh, systems in real time with. And one of the products we offer there is uh, a 
database to host your metrics in. And it's wildly popular. From sort of my learnings, uh, you know, likewise at DigitalOcean, you kind of see, you know, what's the most popular use case for these servers? Well, it's, uh, you know, compute uh, intensive databases that have a lot of stuff that needs to be stored in them. Uh, you look at some of the most highly valued cloud companies today, Snowflake at 50 billion, even in a down market, they're crushing it. And so kind of bringing all these things together intuitively, my response is like, well, maybe you don't want to build the database. So you don't want to like build, you know, Postgres, MySQL, Redis, whatever, but you want to build the thing that manages the database that people, you know, are getting some value on top of. That to me seems to be kind of like a, uh, a killer combo that has resulted in a lot of really uh, breakout companies. And uh, Grafana is just one of the latest where, you know, they're, they're effectively providing a managed uh, database with a dashboarding tool on top. And then my last question is for, you know, people who are interested in starting to build on Lightning, you know, what's the best place to get started? Maybe if somebody has some basic, you know, develop, they are a developer or they have some development skills, but they haven't built on Bitcoin or Lightning before. Like, have you found some good resources for people to get started? Or is it, you know, are you just sort of looking on GitHub and seeing some awesome repos people have built? Um, or is there a book that you found or a course or a YouTube video? What are just some resources for somebody looking to get started? First of all, the last opportunity for businesses is education. If you build something that helps people do things with Lightning, you'll, you'll have a good business. You know, so the enablement component. And then separately, I think Umbrella is sort of a great way to kind of plug and play. You plug the Umbrella in. Uh, That's what I have. <laughs> That's what my note is, Umbrella. They'll make a lot of the setup pretty easy. Aside from that, I think there's a course uh, at MIT on YouTube that provides sort of an overview of how Lightning works. And then, yeah, I think it's sort of like kind of the typical like Google search, Reddit, how to uh, set up a Bitcoin node, Lightning node, GitHub, like, you know, quick steps to uh, send a payment using your node, that type of thing. And Unfortunately, it's not super um, organized right now, but that presents opportunities to builders to you know, provide that service and make things a little bit easier for the uh, people to follow. That's a great opportunity, actually. Yeah, for that sort of enablement layer to get people to be able to build. I almost find that's like a force multiplier in a way. And it's something that I think Ethereum and some of the other sort of crypto ecosystems have actually done much better than Bitcoin. And part of that's they're much more centralized. So that there's a bigger incentive to do that, but just getting people to be educated enough to start building and then let them start building their own things on top of it. I do feel that Bitcoin's like, especially with Lightning, is getting much, much better than that at that with a much more solid uh, foundation. So this was awesome. What's next for, for you? So you're, you know, you have this growth marketing gig, you're thinking through these Lightning use cases. Are we going to see a Lightning company from, from you anytime soon? You know, we'll definitely, you know, keep doing the mining uh, as once the price comes back up and, you know, opportunistically there, but uh, more focus on lightning so far. I think you'll see something that kind of takes a lot of the learnings between DigitalOcean, Grafana and says, hey, you know, uh, if you kind of, if you want to run a node in a profitable place and understand how to open channels efficiently and, and earn yield on your Bitcoin or earn fees for routing payments, this is the place where you know, we're going to make that the easiest for you to you know, understand. And so I would say, yeah, look out in the next six months. I think uh, there's a there's a really cool metrics uh, tool coming down the pipeline. So you can, you know, see, you can get some uh, understanding and insight uh, into what's happening. Awesome. 
Yeah, I'm going to link to all the things you've been talking about in the show notes so people have an easy way to, to access that. And yeah, once you have you know something to show, we can update the, the links in the show notes too. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Neil. It's uh, really a pleasure to talk with you as well. You're always ahead of the curve and uh, appreciate you know riffing on ideas uh, with you as well. This was fun. And anyone who wants to support the show, as usual, you can go to Fountain or any other podcast 2.0 player and basically boost or stream value to the show. There's something special with this episode, though. If you do send uh, sats to outside the system for this particular episode, so whether that's a boost or your streaming value, John will actually receive uh, half the sats as well. So this is a feature of podcasting 2.0 where you can share the value with guests for particular episodes. I've never tried it before, but we're going to try it for the first time uh, with this episode and kind of see what happens. So if you got value from all the things that John shared, consider sending some sats to whether it's streaming value or boosting the show on a podcast 2.0 player like Fountain. John, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on.